Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. It's really a pleasure for me today to be talking with a longtime friend of mine and somebody who I learned so much about journalism from way back in the day when we worked for the Santa Barbara Daily Paper. And it was, um, those were the good old days. And um, I'm going to gush just a little bit, but one of the tragedies, in my opinion, of you know how the news press sort of fell apart was we kind of lost a lot of great journalism. And number one at the top of that list was the man I'm talking to today, Scott Hadley. He's so good, investigative reporter. I learned a lot. Everyone in the newsroom learned a lot. He was definitely a leader of the newsroom. And, you know, from that moment, he went and, you know, did some other journalism, but eventually landed in a different role. And, you know, one of the biggest impacts, I think, is we lost a little bit of what Scott Hadley had left in journalism because he's so good. Uh, Scott Hadley, thank you for being on the show today. Um, how are you doing? I'm great. And it's great to see you. Um, yeah, that was really very nice of you, Josh. And I think that right back at you, I, I think that, um, as you know, journalism, newspaper journalism is a really cooperative thing, you know, and so you you feed off of other people's work and it drives you. And, you know, we're talking about one story, I guess, today, but we worked on a bunch of stories and some high impact stories. And I, I agree with you. It's it's um, it's a bummer for the community that the paper turned the way it did. I, I you know, it's a combination of ownership, but also just the, also the circumstances of newspapers in general across the country. Um, it's nice to see, though, kind of the what's sort of emerging from that, all these community um, journalism um, efforts, stuff that you're doing uh, really on your own. It's pretty amazing. Um, I love watching these, and I still pay a lot of attention to what's going on in Santa Barbara because I love Santa Barbara and I have a lot of connections there and we'll return there someday. Yeah, that's great. I look forward to that day. Um, so we can just hang out, have some coffee or whatever. But Scott, yeah. I, wa I wanted to talk to you because I thought of you when uh, in the news recently was this uh, uh, decision to be made about David Adius. David Adius, as we know, uh, he was the uh, at the time a UCSB student who drove through, he drove his Saab through a crowd of pedestrians on Sabado Tarde, I guess 21 years ago now. And uh, he killed four that night, fifth eventually died. And it was a horrific moment in Santa Barbara and Isla Vista, uh, UCSB community. Uh, he was found to be um, insane and he served time at Patton. And now he's been living in a home where he's been monitored and medicated. And now he's looking to to get out. And so he's going through that process, that hearing. And I wanted to talk to you, Scott, because you and I covered the David Adius uh, event uh, back 21 years ago. We were out there in Isla Vista. Uh, we, we covered it. We talked to people uh, right after it happened. And it was a very, for me, it was like the first big story I had in my career uh, because I was two years in as, you know, working as a professional. And I just wanted to talk to you because you really helped me with that story. Uh, you uh, uh, mentored me. We did it together, but you really led the effort in terms of your 
your poise and your maturity and your experience and how we approached it. So I wanted to talk to you. What do you remember about that night, Scott? Uh, you know, can you take, take me back there to that night, the day after we spent a, several hours reporting that story that first weekend? What do you recall? Well, it was a long time ago. Um, and I, uh, we talked a little bit before we started trying to kind of jog our memories a little bit because the, you know, the facts are a little bit fuzzy, but I do remember um, seeing that line of people on the ground, those bodies. Um, they're pretty late. You were there first. Um, you're working night cops and I think it just gotten off and then was did we have a beeper <laughs> uh, I don't even remember so essentially I think it was you know we're this was a very nascent uh, tech at the time and um, and then I got a call and I don't know we were trying to figure out who the city editor was you know it could have been like Tad Weber it could have been Andy Rose I actually it could have been um, was it, was it Jesse? It could have been Jesse. I don't even remember. Um, but essentially that this had happened. Um, and I don't know how many facts we had about how devastating it was. I, besides seeing the people, which was, which was you know, it's, it, you have to process this in a weird and non-emotional way, but it's hard to see that. I mean, the, the um, that, that devastation, but Weirdly, it was looking at the car um, to understand like just how devastating that was. Um, the car was mangled, you know, and it was mangled because of it hitting people. And that was kind of hard to come to terms with. Um, but you, you, you kind of switch on and say, okay, this is going to kind of suck, but let's put this together, what happened. And um, I think the challenge with this was um, it's IV. Uh, students um, who are from all over, right? They're not long-term residents there. So it's a little harder to track down people. The other thing is it was IV on a weekend. So a lot of people on that block who then sort of dispersed. Um, this was before social media. So we didn't, you wouldn't, you would probably report it differently now. Um, I think that you had I don't remember if you had found this person that night or the next morning, um, but you had talked to somebody who lived in a, a balcony apartment on um, Sabado, kind of looking down that block. And I remember there being there when we were, you had talked to him already, but being there and the things that popped out was them hearing not like a car going fast, but accelerating, not braking. And then the impact was really loud. And um, the aftermath when he got out of the car and started shouting, and this was uh, like a really important um, bit of information, but sensational. And so we had to be careful with it. And that was that quote, which I do think you got, which was um, him saying, I am the angel of death. And um, wh why do you have to be careful with that as a reporter, right? Like, oh God, you're going to put that right up there. Um, we wanted to confirm that in some way. This was a person that was, you know, 
not right next to him. There were a lot of other people there. We want to make sure we got that right. Um, I can't remember. I don't think, I mean, you had had a, like a placeholder story from the night before, which I don't remember what it read, but it was like the bare essentials of the facts. At that time, I don't think we were updating the website. Do you, I don't think so. No, we, we had actually just like had a very bare bones minimum website. And I remember, I, I, I should remember who called me, but I don't remember, but it was whoever was the night editor. And they said they heard on the scanner that they had black tags. So scanner traffic for, you know, a body, right? And so dead right. body. Uh, and so you have to cover that, right? I mean, you can't say I'll do that in the morning. So, so I went out there and I was told to get something by midnight. So I remember it's just find a law enforcement officer who can give me like what happened, the bare minimum, a little bit of the scene and write it up. And we didn't have, I didn't have an iPhone. This is 2000, what, 2000, I guess this is. So I didn't have an iPhone and uh, flip phone. So was I just it 2000, 2000 or 2001, 2000. Oh, it was 2001, I guess. Yeah. It was February. Right. Right. So yeah, I think 2001. Yeah. So I just called it in. I just read it to the editor and they typed it. And then it uh, about five or six inches went into the physical newspaper. And then obviously that's when the real reporting starts. Uh, that's right. what I recall about that night. Yeah, I mean, in, in hindsight, 20 years later, <laughs> it probably, because it was students, it was IV on the weekend, we probably would have, should have gone out that night and stayed all night. And I'd done that before on other things as a cops reporter, but we didn't. We went the next day, next morning, I should say. We rendezvoused at that location. We you found this witness. Um, and then it was basically, you know, all those people, that's the, the, the mistake in cops reporting is like that need to be there right away, not just be, to be at the scene before say it's cordoned off, but because all those witnesses will disperse. And so like trying to recreate what happened is really challenging. Um, I mean, the, I think I benefited from having been a cops reporter for a couple years at the LA Times. And usually what I tried to do was to be just break it down to really simple things like the time and like a sequence of events. And I'm a kind of a visual learner. So having like being able to see, oh, this, he was driving in this direction. This is where the accident happened. These are where the people ended up all of that stuff was sort of helpful. And as you build that, you, you kind of build like a timeline and a visual visualization of what happened. And I've found that this works with other things like other kinds of incidences as well. And it also makes it a little, at least for me, it allows me to be a little less emotional about it um, because I'm just getting like some bare bones facts about it. And so I think the challenge was you had this great uh, source and we're just like we need to confirm this clearly there were a lot of people there so we knew we could find witnesses um, and then I think we were lucky because I had um, the year for the year before I had 
had some sources, you know, people in IV that I knew that I talked to. And among them were these two guys, uh, Sevan Matosian and Greg Shields, who had a public access TV show called IV TV. And so for people actually probably were going to school in, um, you know, 2000 or whatever, this was pretty well known. And they did a series of, um, you know, these weekend essentially videoing the party scene. They'd have themes. It's pretty raunchy, funny, raw kind of stuff, but they both were smart and talented. And despite some of the stuff actually pretty sensitive, I think to, um, I mean, Sevan worked in a um, uh, halfway, halfway house for disabled kids while he was going to school and doing this stuff. And he really cared a lot about the, what he was doing in terms of the videoing. Anyway, I called them and they had happened to be, I mean, uh, doing what they do. And they came upon the scene within minutes of it happening. And he was shooting video. And so while you went out and were looking for more witnesses, I arranged to meet with them to watch the video. Um, they had not yet contacted the sheriff. Um, I duped the video and, um, told them to dupe the video. They gave, and they also, this is unbelievable that I did this and you're going to roll your eyes. I said, this is going to be news. Um, we can't, the news press at the time, we couldn't host video I think on our website so what we did was we created freeze frames of what we were seeing which was so they got there as he got out of the car and um, there was a lot of stuff going on there was uh, there was a young man who was doing first aid on people oh. and um, and then uh, I mean there was a lot of people raw emotion you just saw this murder murders and so people there was a one group of people trying to just beat the shit out of Thaddeus and then and then another couple people that were trying to stop them oh. and he had all that so um and then my suggestion to them was you know give me some time but you should probably like talk to CNN <laughs> um and they ended up doing I can't remember who they what um, national news organization ended up grabbing that video, but they did make contact. I, it may have been CNN, um, but that was really valuable for us because instantly we had moments after the accident, kind of like what the scene was, uh, the numbers of people, what was being said. We had some confirmation of this quote. Um, we couldn't hear it all, but there were, Greg, who, who was the guy who would interview people, also confirmed that, I believe. And there were, um, I think we may have found another witnesses, witness who said some version of that quote that that um, person had given you. Yeah, you, you really elevated the storytelling in that story by having those sources and, and hooking up with Greg and Savon and finding them because... You and I we were able to watch a video. We were able to watch it, and we were able to see these details that we could put in our story. Uh, we could describe the scene of seconds after the crash. 
he got out of the sob and started fighting with people, started swinging. You see uh, law enforcement come and eventually take him down at the legs with the billy club. They smacked him with the billy cut and cut him down kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Because he was he was really animated and sort of out of control and just almost like shadow boxing at people. And (laughs) yeah. Or yeah. And then you could just see the whole scene, you know, and so that was really important. And then you just being so experienced, you know, like getting a copy because, you know, at some point the sheriff's office is going to want that copy. They're going to want it they, for their investigation. And they did. Um, so uh, I think Sevon actually proactively told them he was he didn't want to lose his copy, essentially, because they could take it in evidence so that's why he duped it but he gave them a copy i think um well you know i think he took it into them essentially yeah so that was good and we were able to do that and you know part of that other story was part of that story too is and we see it even today you know it looks when the final product is done when people are reading the story online or in a newspaper it looks so easy like it looks as though these journalists were just able to ask questions and get answers and then they wrote it up. But we know that's not the case. Back then we dealt with a lot of uh, defensiveness, a lot of territorial attitude. Why do you want to ask us questions about this horrible tragedy? Can't you wait? Um, Can't you wait a week? Can you come back later? Can you talk a little bit about, how some of the students responded to you when you were news gathering and how you as a journalist show empathy, but at the same time, make the the case for the journalism. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, it's probably the worst part of the job that we have. And probably if you ask a cop or firefighter or something like that, having to talk to somebody after they've something terrible has happened like that, it's just really painful. And from, you know, what it makes you feel like is crap, you know, like, you know, so you're, you're ripe for being attacked in a sense, because it is this very, I mean, just think about it. There was a whole family that was devastated by that. And the Levy family, that was the, um, the daughter, the son, and then their childhood friend or something like that. Uh, I think the son died a couple of years after, or several years after. Bert, Bert Levy, Bert Levy and Ruth Levy. Yeah. And, um, um, and I, I think that I may have talked to their mom a couple, you know, not right away, but anyway, I, it, it was, it's very difficult. So yeah, yeah, you got that. Um, plus the news press, I mean, the news press had even before the current administration, it always had sort of this reputation of being like, um, not, uh, I don't know. They were not enamored by the college community. Let's put it that way. Right. And so you came in there as this establishment uh, newspaper that didn't do a great job, maybe covering that community. I mean, IV, it is a community. So um, we, we were doing what we could do, but we definitely focused maybe on stories that didn't always cast IV and UCSB in the best light. So, I'll say that. So you get a little bit of resistance there and then you're added on top of it, this terrible tragedy. And so you're having to ask this question. So sure. We've got a lot of people 
who did not want to talk to us, who lashed out at us. And I actually talked to a Nexus reporter. And the reason, like, why would I interview a reporter? The reason I wanted to talk to a Nexus reporter was they were getting calls from national news organizations. Some of them actually knew some of the victims and it was put them in a really peculiar, they were trying to cover the news, they were being interviewed and they were also suffering a loss. And um, one of those reporters lashed out at me, like, how could you call me? How could you do this? Why are you, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you know, of all people, you should know um, that we have to do this in this job. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't know if I have a, that was a very long-winded non-answer um there's not really a good technique it, it's um and um i think part of it is um and you see some reporters handling in a way that works for them but probably isn't good for the profession and that is this unemotional um maybe even cynical or you just lack that feeling. And the reason you do that is because some people do that is because it is your, you can't see these things over and over again and suffer that same emotional impact of what you're seeing and not have it take a toll. And so people put up different defenses to be able to do their job. I think um, in my case, I was trying to do both things like, okay, this is a person, they just saw this crazy thing happen and they're going to be impacted for their whole life. And now I'm going to ask them this really hard question. Um, so I think in those situations, sort of less is more. So I, you know, this is what I, I'm, this is my name. This is what I do. I'm sorry about the having to do this, but I need to talk to you right now. And when I get pushed back, I usually say, Unfortunately, this is the moment when I can tell the story. I might not be able to do it in the future. And if they still don't want to talk to me, they don't want to talk to me. So it doesn't, I think there are other people that maybe push it a little harder. And um, anyway, that was my approach. I don't know. What do you do? Yeah, well, I, I always just say, um, I'm really sorry to have to approach you under these conditions. And um, I really just want to give you an opportunity to talk or share some information about what has happened here. And I feel when I try to build, allow them to be part of my process, they, it kind of uh, clicks for them. Like, oh, this is, a, this is an obligation or an opportunity I have to talk about my community or these people who've been, uh, you know, who are victims or have been impacted. And when they see it that way, it's more of like a shared sort of goal than it is you know, can you talk to me about what happened? You know, so you sort of have to do that. I've done that, you know, many, I don't cover much of that anymore, but you know, when you're first starting out, that's kind of all you do. You do the breaking news, you do the crime and all that stuff happens on the weekends. You know, it was such a sensational story because you had David Adius, the son of this Hollywood, what director, producer, the Sopranos, he had a name in the industry you know, there's not a press release that comes out that says, here's this person's background. You know, we had to pull bits and pieces from people who knew him and, and interacted with him and roommates. And what we were able to do in that story was sort of talk about what had kind of, what people had observed about him 
you know, during his time at UCSB and what led up to that. And uh, that that's really the challenge of that story is having the persistence to be able to keep coming at it after rejection, after rejection. I mean, there's 10 rejections for every one person who has some, some information. Um, and then of course the trial, you know, and after that it was, it was a huge story. I remember talking to Chancellor Yang that night, you know, he's still there, Chancellor Yang. Uh, and I don't know if you got this stuff, but there's a part of our story. And every time I read it again, because I talk about it in uh, one of my classes for my breaking news uh, portion, we talk about how to cover things. And every time I read the part, this part of the story, I sort of uh, think, wow, why did we include this in the story? Um, I don't know how we did it, but do you remember at the time, Gail Marshall is in the story. And toward the end, we talked about how she had recently proposed this um, ordinance that would require people to get permits for parties over 25 people, or sorry, over 100 people. And uh, that's sort of a line in the story. And we used it to sort of show that, that there's been effort by government leaders to sort of take a look at the party atmosphere in UCSB. Do you recall who did that or who, how we ended up talk, talk, talking to her? I think it was just timely. It sort of feels too, and journalists can appreciate this. Feels like something an editor would have added. Exactly. Like <laughs> and, when there's um, too many cooks in the kitchen, the story yeah. starts to get unwieldy, you know? Just bl blame it on the editor. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I can see why. So, I mean, in hindsight, there were a lot, there were, you know, because of Halloween, because of, um, what is that? Something, Flotopia? Deltopia. Yeah. Deltopia, sorry. Um, all these different things that became, you know, whatever uh, issues for the county. Um, I think this was obviously different, but I think it, you know, so that's probably why it wasn't really appropriate to be in there, but that's probably what, what an editor was trying to make broaden that issue i mean what it became was a story about um mental health and parenting and this weird i mean like in hindsight you look at it and like should he have been sent off to college knowing what they knew about their son um there could have been a lot of other issues that were going on i think i understand more about um bipolar disorder and how that actually can, it, you know, people get, it gets worse right in that age when you're becoming an adult. Um, so there's things like that, but, you know, we're talking about 24 hours <laughs> within this accident and us still trying to understand why would anyone do something like this? And we didn't really understand it. And there were people that said he was crazy. Um, and I think, um, did, did we get this thing about him being called crazy Dave or something like that. Um, uh, and, you know, that first night of just find, getting his name was a big deal. And then I don't remember if we ever, at least I don't think I ever tracked down which dorm he was in or, or where he lived. Um, so. Yeah. Law enforcement's not saying his name is this, you know, right afterward, we've got to get it from other people and, and confirm. And I remember you did, you were able to talk to some of the, the family members, um, at least one of them, you know, so, you know, a lot of people 
who've been in town the last 10 years or so haven't really been privy to your body of work and the great amount of stories that you've done at the news press, at the LA Times, um, you know, really, and, you know, sort of like thinking about you and hearing you talk, I, I realized why we did so many good stories together, like this one and the Beverly Lacumber one and just the little daily ones yeah. that you helped me with was you really bring out the best of me in my reporting. Like when I, when I would work with you, I would think, damn, I got to do a good job on this because, you know, Scott's really good and he's going to read this. And so I've got to really put my best effort. And um, that's a quality that you have. And I'm sure of many other reporters who you've worked with would, would feel the same way. And I think that's probably been missing since the day you left and the day that we stopped working together to some degree. But can you talk a little bit about your career and some of the big stories that you did and, you know, why you sort of loved journalism and, and got into it. And I mean, you're, you're one of these brilliant people, you know, you can, you got master's degrees, you can do a lot of different things. You chose journalism, right? Jeez. Can you, can you talk to my kids and just tell them I was, really, I was way overboard. Super nice of you to say all they'll, this. They'll, they'll, they'll tell you in 10 years, you know, how that goes. Um, and by the way, that year, um, the Adia story, that's the, you, you know, you did a shitload of work on the Beverly Kumba case and elder abuse, big, big story there. And, you know, two years into your career, that's pretty, pretty impressive to be able to do that. Um, and I don't, I don't see myself in the same way that you just described. I do think that um, I do miss being a reporter and as a reporter, um, you know, I just brought myself, of course, to the table, right? I, and I have a lot of curiosity. I felt like every job that I had, I'm going to break a story, whether, you know, you like it or not, <laughs> I'm going to find something. Um, and so I did do that. Um, I'm kind of a late bloomer. I did a lot of different jobs when I was young. Um, I was a grave digger. I was like a bartender. I did, I worked for an environmental organization. I worked in a warehouse. I did some labor work, um, uh, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I, I liked writing, but I wasn't very good at it. Um, and, uh, and I kind of was interested in, and when I worked for an environmental organization, I started writing a lot of what would turn out to be sort of like investigative stories. And these were kind of boring, but they were about like water usage and agriculture and, um, and looking at how the system was, could be rigged in certain ways. And um, anyway, and then I ended up wanting to get better at that. And I went to journalism school out of at Berkeley and then out of, there I did um, some freelance work and then I got a job at the LA Times. I worked there for five years. Um, but you know, there was something else that was going on during that whole period, which is I wanted to uh, return to Santa Barbara and live there. My wife's family is from Ojai and she has a brother in Santa Barbara. We lived there for a long time. And uh, so even when I took that job at the LA Times, I was living in Santa Barbara um, and I worked for, at the time, I did not know this, but that was kind of the heyday, you know, the pinnacle times where they have a newsroom of, 
I don't know, like two to 3,000 people, you know, editorial editors, writers, photographers, copy editors. I think they're in like 250 now or something like that. But at the time, and they had a lot of different editions. Um, and I just happened to work for the Ventura County edition. Um, that was a really good experience in that at the time there were, um, so we covered Ventura County, but also a little bit of the Valley. We did sometimes did that. And occasionally we would be asked to work downtown for to cover shifts or whatever. Um, but the landscape was so different. You were competing with several TV stations, a ton of these local public newspapers, small newspapers, radio, a couple other metros, right? The regional paper in Ventura. And so every day was just like massive pressure to produce. And so there was that, I guess, helped um, feed that desire to do good work, you know? Um, and I, that, that's kind of like how I approached everything. In terms of stories, you know, I, I like I said, I covered cops, but um, that, that first year that I was in Ventura County, um, you know, there were a couple of large natural disasters. You know, there was a flood, there was a huge, the Green Meadow fire um, that burned to Malibu. There was the Oxnard unemployment agency shooting um, in which James O'Brien, an Oxnard police officer was killed right near where we were. And I remember hopping into a VW bug with our photographer because he said, I know where he's going. And he, the guy had left the Oxnard EDD and was driving to Ventura EDD. And he just assumed that's what he was doing. And we, sh we pull up right when they, he got, he was getting out of the car and they started a shootout. Um, so that was kind of a trial by fire of like using your instinct, like knowing the area, trying to think a little bit about um, things in that context. Um, I did some political reporting, um, did some stories on a political corruption case, which is sort of straight out of, I don't know, something you'd read like in Jimmy Breslin, where there was a, a trash a company owner who was, you know, mobbed up a little bit and he was giving money to a guy who was running for a supervisor and getting really good deals on a trash contract. So I learned a lot and I work with people that were just way smarter than me too. So that was super helpful. There was a guy there that I'm still close friends with named Daryl Kelly, who's just a great investigative reporter. And there were a ton of really, really good writers. Um, this guy, Fred Alvarez, um, a good friend of mine, Mary Poles, um, these are all P Stephanie Simon who ended up covering the OJ case through the whole thing. And she was like, I don't know, maybe 21, 22 years old and writing column one stories for the other times. So that was a really good experience. Um, when I eventually went to the news press, you know, part of going there was cause I, okay, this is where we're going to live. I love this community. I want to be part of it. And um, uh, Jesse Chavarria was, my first ed editor and you, you know Jesse um, and he really liked the idea of having some ambitions towards doing bigger things 
And to be honest, it wasn't like, if you look back, there's a city editor named R.V. Brenner who went on to be an editor at the Washington Post and um, Scott Wilson, who went on, is, is at the Washington Post, who's really good, really, really good. And they were there earlier. So it wasn't like we were, um, and I think there's just been some really talented and continue to be really talented people there, um, you're, you included. Um, but it, it is a community of a, you know, I mean, the South Coast is like 200,000 people maybe. Um, so it's just a different, there's this different spectrum of types of stories that you could do. Um, but, you know, you mentioned the elder abuse stories. We did those. Um, we had that Ponzikeem story, the Slatkin story. That's right. Yeah. Um, we had weird, you know, criminal cases that were interesting narratives to the uh, Jesse James Hollywood story, oh. um, which was really kind of a story about families and just, you know, two different families kind of clashing and bad things happening. Um, I mean, those are some of the things I worked on. Yeah. Yeah. And did you cover the postal shooting? Were you around? Yeah. Yeah. I was actually there that night and um, yeah. And that was kind of interesting because at the time Andy or Jerry, maybe it was Jerry who kind of gave me the gift of allowing me to be kind of like a player coach. And so I was reporting projects reporting, but with, with a couple other people. And so I did that, that first night, um, I remember knocking on, um, sort of pieced together some of the stuff and I figured out where she had lived and I knocked on that door and, uh, turns out that was where one of the victims was who was leaning against the door mm. on the other side of the door. Of course, they never came to the door <laughs> and they weren't found until the next morning. That was a little eerie. Um, but that story was interesting because it, we, um, we sent some people to New Mexico. We did a lot of, of, um, she had family in New York and New Jersey. Um, we were able to get portions of her, um, diary and things like that. Um, anyway, yeah. <laughs> appreciated your uh, maturity poise it's I know I've said it a couple times but it's it's really a rare quality like to be able to have all this stuff come at you and triage it in a way where you make your reporters around you feel confident enough to approach the story and that's something that you definitely have like I never I don't think I've ever had to deal with like oh my goodness Scott's overreacting again to the story calm down Scott <laughs> That's just not, you know, it's always like measured, appropriate direction. Hey, um, so, you know, when you left the news press, you eventually got this really good job, right? <laughs> got hired at 23andMe, which I don't know if at the time it was like big and everybody kind of knew what they were doing or if it blew up a few years later. But can you talk to me a little bit about what you're doing now and uh, sort of, you know, what, what 23 and me is, is doing and how they've been impacted by, by COVID. Yeah, I can, I can tell also, it didn't just happen like that. I mean, I, I, um, it, it, it's a long story, but 
you know, I, first of all, I left the news press and I ended up working at the Ventura County Star for a while. And I continued doing projects there um, for three years and covered a bunch of different stuff. The, you know, housing crisis, I covered a big environmental Superfund site, I covered the military, um, did a bunch of other things. But what was going on, um, which you could probably relate and a lot of journalists out there can relate to is you could just see this thing happening in front of you, which is like a big game of musical chairs in which the chairs are getting ripped out from under you essentially in terms of what you're gonna do. And I did, when I left the news press, I had the ability, I think you went to the Mercury, right? Yes. And so I think I was interviewing in Santa Rosa and Sacramento and went to DC and interviewed there, uh, Maryland and New Jersey. And I'm like, you know, I grew up moving all the time because my dad was in the army and I didn't want to, I had two little kids. I didn't want to do that. And I knew that I, I just also like could imagine moving to Sacramento and then like a year later saying, Oh, we're, we're gonna have layoffs, right? There just wasn't a lot of security. We were pretty much hand to mouth anyway. It was it's not like we got paid a ton of money doing what we we're doing. So I was looking for work and um, I'm sorry, I'm gonna tell you more than you wanna know, but I, this explains, explains that there was no grand plan. I actually spent a year uh, trying to become a cop. And uh, mm-hmm. I think think you remember this. And I, I actually- that. You did. Be, you, I, sorry, you tell I us. Did. Yeah. No, I did. Yeah. Um, it's crazy. So I was an old dude becoming a cop and I got into the academy. I remember Shake, uh, Cam Sanchez invited me over to his office. We shook hands. He's like, I'm super excited that you're going to do this. But I had this, um, I had a torn rotator cuff that I hadn't done anything about surfing injury for a couple of years. And I couldn't do tons of push-ups, right? Stupid, right? So I get this thing fixed. And because I'm older, I'm not ready for the academy. And I was supposed to start at the end of the year. This was like November. And they said, okay, we can push it off until like February or something. Meanwhile, my sisters were like, hey, maybe you don't really want to be a cop. You don't want to do this. You should, maybe you should look into this thing. And I had a sister who said, um, hey, uh, she had worked at Apple and um, said they were looking for somebody and I, you know, sent something and they, I got an interview. I'm like, stoked. That's great. And when I, that happened, I had another, another sister said this other company, this friend of mine works for this company called 23Me. And so I just kind of create, you know, got two interviews really quickly. This never happens. Right. I, came out of the Apple interview going, boy, that would be cool to work there, but I didn't get an offer. I went to the interview with 23andMe and I'm like, these guys are just really young and way too smart for me, but this is really cool. And I ended up getting an offer and I was like, I can't do this because I've I've already shook hands with the chief and I want to do this. And the idea about me becoming a cop wasn't, I didn't have the desire to like, you know, become a street cop I thought I could do that for a little bit and then become an investigator um, maybe work for the DA's office or something like that because I had friends doing that and I had friends that were cops and I thought that that I had an aptitude towards doing that Um, I was pretty good with documents and tracking people down and getting information 
Um, anyway, and the thing with 23andMe, just, you know, it was kind of a fluke and they offered me good money for me, <laughs> for someone who's a reporter. It's like, wow, they pay that much? And um, yeah, and I just, yeah, it was cool. And it's been, it was, it, it was, I was the oldest person there, you know? And when I started, there were about 40 people. And um, I got to see a lot of things that I, you know, I'm not, I wasn't really familiar with working for a, a business. And, um, but also a business that was sort of creating a new industry, essentially. And um, so that's, and I've been here since that then. Um, and it's very strange for someone in Silicon Valley to stay with a company for as long as I have. Usually people are, you know, two to three years and then they move to another place. But I just uh, learn a lot. Always like, um, you know, it's obviously very science-driven genetics company. Um, and then you ask like about oh, COVID. Let me, let me, since, we talk, since you talked about uh, trying to become a cop, do you remember the day you told Cam Sanchez or whoever you told that you weren't going to do it? And can you walk me through that? Uh, yeah, I told him and then I'm blanking on, there was a, I mean, first of all, at the time, this was during the recession. So a ton of people applied. There were only, I think they had five spots in the academy. And so, you know, it was winnowed down from a gazillion candidates. So it was a very fortunate thing to get to that point. So I felt really bad and they were really supportive. And once you got past this thing, it was a lot of screening. And I did talk to somebody and they had somebody else. Um, and I'm, I talked to Cam and Cam said, wait, you know, wait to decide this. I want you to talk to this other. So they had me talk to a sergeant and, and I really was just basically saying it's about money and my family, essentially, I realized that if I was to do this job, um, and I'm going to digress for a second, during my time at the Star, I was in Iraq for a little while, and um, it, was, it was a great experience, but I, it was also kind of selfish of me because I didn't really realize how much, uh, how difficult that was for my wife, not just because I was away, but more because of the fear of what would happen. And so like every time something happened, she was assuming something terrible. Mm. And um, even in sleepy Santa Barbara, this stuff happens, right? And so I was really thinking a lot about that. And then, and the reality is I actually probably could have made very good money, but I would have been working overtime and doing these extra shifts. And that would have been a big burden on my family. So, so when I had that conversation with the sergeant, I just said, I think this is just the right thing for me to do, right? So, yeah, it was hard. And, and do you think about it ever? Like, what if? I thought about it, like, with about within about a year of that. So that class of people that I would have come out of the academy with, I'm not sure if everyone graduated. I think most everyone made it through, but I'm not sure. But um, do you remember there was a shooting on State Street um, and it was, it was like at Zello or outside of Zello on state street where this guy, uh, who's actually like a 
Navy CB or something. He pulled a gun and he was shot by uh, cops, Santa Barbara PD. That was a while ago, maybe vaguely. Yeah, Zello. Yeah, that was, was yeah, that, that was, was the that was one year after. Okay. Right, and so I was like, oh, I I would have potentially been on obviously with another officer and been in that position. Um, I mean, they had to do that or whatever, but I would hate to have been in that position. Yeah. Yeah. So I, think, I did. And I love how you just throw in, oh, and also I was in Iraq, you know, and I think that points to another one of your qualities is your humility. Um, you really love the journalism. It's not about you. Whereas a lot of people, they might say that the first thing to sort of, you know, mark their territory, like I've done that. But, you know, for you, it was just another thing that you did in your career. Um, very admirable thing to do. Uh, but for you, it's just part of the job. Uh, so 23 and me, right? So what do we can, we can, uh, forgive me, I'm just going to be like sort of my impression of it. You can get a DNA, a background check, or a test, find out your relatives by you know, saliva, spitting into a cup, a dish. Obviously, it's advanced beyond that. Tell me what 23andMe does. There are no dishes involved. <laughs> There's no background check. No bile? No. <laughs> no. Um, you spit into a tube, you send it off, they extract DNA from it, and they do what's called genotyping. So you're looking at certain segments in the genome that we know the most about. And from that information, yes, you can learn stuff about um, your ancestry, you know, different places that you, your, your relatives are from, and you can connect yourself to other relatives if you want to do that. But um, there's also this whole health side of the product, which is basically your predispositions towards different conditions that are, you know, that have a genetic component. And then the company also allows people to sort of opt in if they wish to, to research. And that's really fascinating because that pooled genetic and phenotypic data. So genetic data is your, obviously your genetics, that phenotypic data is like kind of everything else, the, your medical history, your ethnicity, your, um, if you're a man or a woman, all that stuff is pulled together. And you can really see how all of that data pooled together can um, tell you a lot about the origin of illnesses. And that can tell you about ways to potentially treat those things. And that's what's really kind of, um, I think, revolutionary about it. Um, so, yeah, that's what we do. And there's a lot more competitors now. Wasn't 23andMe sort of the first company to do this? And now I feel like I see commercials for this kind of stuff a lot. Is that is that fair or is 23andMe unique in the market? Um, I, we're unique in that we do several different things that not, any one company does. Um, so there's a company that just looks at your ancestry, for instance. Mm -hmm. There are companies that um, uh, do, uh, essentially they'll, they'll look at certain portions of your genome to report a certain conditions like for breast cancer, but there are very few competitors that do. And then there's like these telehealth, uh, you know, like virtual health uh, companies that are doing stuff that we're doing but there's no company that's doing all of the stuff that we're doing together and no company yet that um is really doing this uh looking at how what this data can tell you about illness uh 
like for research and for potential treatments. And that's really um, new. And what do you do specifically? How, how were you able to use your journalism skill set in this job? So I'm just a writer and editor, right? So we do, uh, we create a lot of content. Um, um, I'm not on the marketing team. I'm on the communications team. So I'm doing PR, a lot of stuff on our blog. I do ghostwriting, messaging, um, and things like that. And there's just like, you're communicating a pretty complicated science, right? So you want to be, how do you do that in a way that's interesting and compelling and that people can understand and that's kind of what we do as a journalist, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you uh, definitely are missed in Santa Barbara for your journalism, but I know that 23andMe obviously values you, you know, in, in the same ways and you're doing, I'm sure great work, great work there. Uh, you know, I, I uh, dabbled in, in other jobs too. You know, I went and worked at the Mercury News and, you know, much like you, it's like the, the kids and the family drive everything. And, uh, you know, I could have stayed up at San Jose and, you know, be a Scott Hadley one day, right? Like keep rising and being like that top notch. But then you have children and, you know, then your wife doesn't want to move. And then you've got to decide, do I want to be a divorced dad who has a great journalism career, but doesn't see their kids? Or do I want to spend time with my kids and make the journalism work somehow in the small town, you know? And so that's what I decided to do. And I did some PR for a little while, but I love journalism and whatever reason, just, you know, cobbling together all these jobs to try to. No, it's really, really impressive. And I remember us having these conversations. I remember you struggling. I think for a while you had, you were like, commuting back and forth uh um and then you know if you're still working as a journalist today you, you know that's so impressive to be able to build a career right now because it's really hard um you know there are exceptions right but there's just so few good paying jobs and i think what you've put together is pretty pretty impressive i love watching the podcast by the way and um and I still follow everybody's work and you are now like kind of the man with all the contacts, right. In the city, um, which is pretty impressive. Um, and there's still these people that I really admire. I mean, I, I think you probably feel the same way about, you know, Nick Welsh and, and Melinda and, um, and Jerry and, um, I'm sure I'm leaving other people out, but you just like, oh my God, that those all are all people that are part of this pretty small community and they're so talented. And so the city's been lucky, right? In that way. Scott, I want to, before we wrap up, I want to just sort of get an update on you now. You know, you're, so you're in the Bay Area, right? Um, mm-hmm. But your kids, you still have this tie to Santa Barbara. Tell us about your kids and, you know, sort of where, where you're at right now. Yeah, I mean, we still, um, I mean, my wife and I uh, have always planned to go back to Santa Barbara. Um, my kids are now in college, um, have a freshman and a junior, and they're both at UCSB. Um, and uh, my wife's father, we, we were had a rough <clears throat> period during COVID where we lost some family members and both of us kind of dealing with that at the same time. And 
Um, I'm sure like everybody has gone through the sort of reassessment of what's important and things like that. We, we both, you know, even though it's been a long time, I still have very, very close friends in Santa Barbara, um, non-journalism friends as well as journalism friends. And, um, um, and we have family still down there. So um, we kind of go down there periodically uh, every year. What's it like to be a dad now that you have college kids? I've got a junior, you know, and so in a couple of years, the whole world's going to change. But I also have an eight-year-old, so I'll still be in that, you know, dad mode for a long time. Uh, but what, what's it been like for you to sort of have both your kids out of the house? Um, it's less exciting. <laughs> I feel really boring because having them around, they're both really cool people. And, um, my wife and I, um, are, I mean, I think this, you'll hear this from anybody who's gone through this sort of, um, where you're like, oh, now what do we do? You know, what, what are we going to talk about? Um, so we're going through that <clears throat> a little bit and, um, you know, there's, like some nostalgia for having them around, obviously. Um, it's weird. There's like some trauma of having a high school age kid, a teenager. There's a lot of stuff that you deal with during that time. And then all of a sudden they're gone and you're like, whoa, wow. Um, but uh, what's been pretty cool is that um, you, like with my daughter, this happened a while ago and is that you just start relating to them in a different way. It's like um, more as peers and that's kind of neat. Um, and then I, I guess the only other thing is as a, I mean, you, it's not like you're not gonna be a parent anymore. So there's stuff that's always happening that we're helping with. So that's, you know, your job forever. Yeah. Okay, well, I really appreciate your time, Scott. Uh, you know, it's always a pleasure to talk to you and. You know, we went from talking every day for hours and having lunch a couple times a week to, uh, you know, sort of long distance, like, you know, occasional communication. So it's such a pleasure to be able to uh, be able to talk to you and, and do it in this format and give people the opportunity to know a little bit about you and what the what an incredible journalist you you were are maybe one day will be again. So thanks. Thanks a lot for your time, Scott. Thank you, Josh. It's really nice of you to say all that stuff. And I, I feel equally impressed by what you do, what you're continuing to do. So thank you for that. All right. Thank you.